All right? In John 21.1, we see this important passage where it talks about, as we begin this study last Sunday on John 21, where he says in the last part of verse 1, John 21, and he revealed himself in this way. This is the way that Jesus sought to reveal himself a third time, described in verse 14, to his disciples. Now, this is not the third time, but it is the third time recorded in the Gospel of John. And this is the third time it was Jesus revealing himself unto his disciples. We learned in John 20 where Jesus instructed his disciples to go to Galilee and to await him by the sea. It was just following two appearances that he made. First, he actually three, he appeared in early John 20 to Mary in the garden and told her to go to the disciples and tell the disciples that he is in fact not dead, he has risen, and to meet him back in the garden. And then she went and told the disciples they didn't believe her. Jesus then appears for the first time in the upper room. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, poof, he's there in their midst, appears out of thin air. He is there standing, waiting, says nothing, then reveals himself. And so to sort of the calm things, he says, peace be with you. After that first appearance, then Thomas comes on the scene and refuses to believe that Jesus has, in fact, risen from the dead. We saw how we often refer to him or reference to him as doubting Thomas. The reality is that all of the disciples doubted the resurrection of Jesus, not just Thomas. But Thomas said, I will believe only if I touch and feel. He wanted a, a special dispensation. He wanted an experience beyond that which the disciples had experienced. And Jesus then, seven days later, appears in that same place when Thomas is there and presents to Thomas his hands and his side. And Thomas makes the most bold declaration that we've ever seen throughout the Gospel of John where Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And he falls on his face and he worships Jesus. Then the disciples, then after Jesus leaves, make their way to the place that he had assigned to them. He had told them to go in Galilee. They arrive in Galilee, and Galilee is a, a familiar place to them. Most of the disciples grew up in Galilee. They had been born there. They had spent their life playing there. They had fished there. They had a business there in Galilee. Most of it was a family business of fish and chips, and, and so they, they had a business there. And Jesus selectively singles each one of these disciples out. He calls them out from being fishers of fi fishermen of fish and to become fishers of men, and then commissions them then as his disciples and begins the training process. Now, at the conclusion of his mission on earth, he tells his disciples to go back to that very familiar spot in Galilee. You see, Galilee was the headquarters that Jesus often used in discipling his disciples, and he used it for rest and relaxation, going and coming in ministry. And so it's a familiar place for them. And because it's so familiar, they get incredibly comfortable. And in John 21, beginning with verse 2, we realize and recognize that because of their comfort and because of their impatience, Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. In other words, I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of nothing happening. I'm going to grab the bull by the horns. I'm going to grab the steering wheel. I'm going to put my pedal to the metal, and I'm going to force something, make something happen. I'm going fishing. Six of the disciples says, we're going with you, and off they go. In a boat all night long, they fish, and they catch absolutely nothing, zero, nada, nothing to brag about, much less talk about they catch nothing. Jesus undetected by them on the shore about 100 feet away, we learned last week, says to them, hey, have you caught anything? I can imagine after that question, there was a millisecond of hesitation, and that millisecond must have seemed like years, when the disciple thought, admit that I didn't catch anything. Have you ever known a fisherman ever admit they didn't catch anything? 
when they don't catch anything, what do they do? They should tell you about the one that got away, right? Or the ones that got away. And so finally he then admits, no, meaning nothing. Then this stranger to them on the shore, about 100 yards away, said, throw your net on the right side of the boat. And the seven disciples look at each other and say, what? Well, we've been throwing it on both sides, front, back, the whole thing. We've caught nothing all night long. What does he think? We are rookies, but eh. okay, one more throw. And they throw their net, and as soon as they do, it is filled up with fish to their amazement. They're astounded at this magnificent catch, a catch that more than likely they have never seen in their life before, and John recognizes the miracle. And when he recognized the miracle, he recognizes that it's the master who's on the shore, this stranger who told him to throw it on the right side of the boat. It is Jesus. And he turns to Peter and he says, it's the Lord. Peter puts on his outer garment, 100 yards away, bam, and starts swimming to shore. He gets there first. John and the other disciples do the logical, rational thing, which John always does. They secure the fish to the side of the boat, and they make their way to the shore. And when they arrive to the shore, that's John 21, verse 9, where we come to our study today. Now, having set all that up, I want you to think about for a minute the disciples where they were. They were told to go to Galilee, and they didn't wait for the Lord. And they took matter into their own hands, matters in their own hands, and they set out on a course to do something, to make something happen. And while they're out there all night long fishing, they catch absolutely nothing. And so when Jesus appears, he appears to them as a stranger. But get this, he's 100 yards away from where they are. 100 yards away. Jesus told them to meet him in Galilee. And they are a hundred yards away from where he told them to wait for him. He didn't say, meet me on the sea. He said, meet me by the sea. And Jesus is standing on that shore, awaiting for his disciples to recognize him, to listen to him, and to return to him. They have distanced themselves from the place that Jesus had told them to await for him. Now, here's the application. I think there are some times, as we begin this study, I want us to think about this. There are some times when we drift from where we are supposed to be. And it is we who have moved away from where we are supposed to be. It is not him. And the disciples have moved away from Christ, and in their moving away from him, they are out there on their own, doing their own thing, without him present, without his blessing. They end up empty-handed, they, and all of their toil and their effort and their sweat and their equity in what they've done all night long, they have caught absolutely nothing. And it isn't until they listen to a stranger to do what he'd asked them to do, and they do it, that they finally recognize it is Jesus. And they're still out there, and he's on the shore waiting. For them to recognize their failure, to repent, I think, of where they are, and to return back to where he originally told them to meet him, by the sea. And I think sometimes we, like the disciples, can easily drift from where Christ wants us to be. Now, it may not be direct disobedience, but it's a drift. 
I mean, the fact is we live in a culture that often goes against the flow of our Christian walk and our witness and our work for the Lord. And we are told to be here and we're told to do this and we're told to become this. But as a result of our negligence or our impatience or whatever it may be, a direct disobedient act or maybe just a slight distant drift because we have failed to implement the disciplines of waiting on God and to doing meticulously what he has asked us to do. There, there's sort of a drift in which we, we find ourselves basically just slowly drifting away and we're supposed to be here the whole time and then, then we find ourselves over here and, and we're supposed to be over there and what happens to our perspective of Jesus when we're here and he's over there? He often is unrecognizable to us. And we get into a circumstance or situation of our own doing and we fail to see his activity. We fail to see his presence. But the whole time he's there on the sea shore waiting for us to recognize that he's there. And we're over here working ourselves, fingers to the bone, sweat, equity in this, nothing happening. And he's still waiting for us to return back to him. That's the disciples. And now they're at a distance and they recognize, oops, we're not where we're supposed to be. What do they do? They don't stay out on the sea. They move toward Jesus, right? Now, the whole purpose for Jesus showing up on the seashore was to do what? Was to reveal himself to his disciples in a way that would be life transformational. Their lives after this third encounter in the Gospel of John will never be the same. They will be forever changed and transformed by this encounter. There's never another moment of doubt or discouragement or waywardness or defeat from this point on recorded in the scriptures. I think this encounter, this third encounter recorded in John, transforms their lives completely, totally. They're different from this point on. And I want you to notice in this text, as they move from being out in the sea and they move to where Jesus is on the shore awaiting their arrival, he wants them to come up close because he knows that the closer they get, the more they see him for who he is and what he provides. You see, when we're over here and we're distant from God and, and we're over here on our own, we, we, we often are clouded, we're confused, we're despondent, we're working, but we don't recognize Jesus and what he's doing. But as we move closer to him, we, we enter into new revelations. We, we enter into new understandings. We, we come into new insights that he peels away from our doubt and discouragement and, and defeat. And we begin to see him. And the closer we get to him, the more we see who he is and who we are in him and what is possible with, with this close relationship with him. And so what we want to describe today is a close proximity to Jesus that we as his disciples disciples must not only be close, but we must stay close in the world in which we live because the closer we stay in him and to him, the greater our understanding is, the more that we see about who he is and what we are in him and what is possible through him. And I'm convinced there are a lot of people today who don't see Jesus for who he is and what he can do in their circumstances and situations because they're way over here. And they need to turn and recognize, you know, I'm not really where I I should be. And so I'm going to move toward you, Jesus, not away from you. And as I do, clarity, confusion disappears. I see him for all that he is. 
and I understand what he's doing in my circumstance in my situation. So let's take a look at, at eight insights as quickly as we can. Let's unpack these in about 15 minutes. So buckle up, let's go. You ready? Number one, the closer I get to Jesus, the more my understanding and my insight will be in regard to his identity. The closer I get to Jesus, the more I see his identity. Notice verse 9. And when they got out, when they, when they got out on the land, they is who? All seven of the disciples are there. Peter got there earlier, and now the other six are there, and they're all there with Jesus. They're all there. All are included in this incredible revelation. He doesn't leave anybody out. And notice what they saw. They saw Jesus open not only their eyes, but he opened their understanding. And what they see, they see a charcoal fire in, in place, fish laid on the coal, and bread. Now, remember they had left earlier that evening to do what? To go fishing. To seek to provide for themselves. To catch fish which they didn't catch. And now here they come onto the shore, and when they arrive, they see Jesus already has what they were seeking. He already has it. It's already available. It's already there. And and here we see this incredible dependability in Jesus, in that Jesus in his identity is saying to them, I am dependable. You can look to me, rely on me, and if you rely on me, I will meet your needs. Your needs are not met outside of me. They are met in me and through me. Look to me to meet your needs. You cannot meet them on your own independently and apart from me. I am Jesus. I am dependable. I am reliable. I am trustworthy. And I will meet your needs. These are just not the physical needs of the disciples. They're the spiritual needs as well. Because I can imagine, I don't know about you, but coal takes a little while to get it started and takes a little while to get going before you put your fish on it. Once you get it going, get it started, it doesn't take long for fish to cook, I don't think. But I wonder how long Jesus stood on that shore waiting to be recognized by his disciples while all along they're throwing their nets, catching nothing, and the whole time he's over there, already got what they're looking for. I wish they'd turn to me and see me for who I am. And what I have provided for them. Number two, we see is an inclusivity. He's an inclusive Savior. Verse 10, first invitation we see of two in this text. Jesus said to them. Now, I don't know this to be a fact, but I can imagine after they got out of the boat and the, Peter was already there and they come up to Peter and, and Peter and Jesus are there and now all seven are there, you know, with their toes in the sand and there's a fire and there's some fish and there's some bread and Jesus is standing there. And, and John doesn't tell us anything about what is said. Maybe it was because nothing was said. The disciples are silent. They don't know what to say. And then Jesus breaks the moment of silence and he speaks to them. Here's the invitation. Hey, boys, I want you to go back to the boat and bring some of the fish that you've just caught. It's an invitation from Jesus. I mean, doesn't he already have fish and bread there provided and supplied for the disciples? Yes, but he wants more. He wants what they caught. The reality is, did they catch the fish? Come on, did they catch the fish? 
When did they catch the fish? On the instructions of Jesus. On their own, independently and apart from Jesus, they caught absolutely nothing. And it wasn't until he showed up on the scene, he said, cast it on the right-hand side, and they do, and they catch the fish. It was only under his instruction and their obedience of those instructions that they catch fish. And Jesus, with their help, caught the fish. Jesus includes us in the redemptive process that he wants to do with, with the lives that he wants to touch through us. And he is an inclusive Jesus. And notice he said to them, I don't know who you are or what you think you are or what you think you're not. You're included in the plan, the purpose, the presence, and the power of Christ. He included all of them. Now, there are times in the ministry of Jesus when he singled one or three or a few of them out and gave them a special dispensation and showed them some things that others didn't see. But on this occasion, he wants all of them to see and all of them to be a part and all of them to work side by side. Because if you remember earlier on in the chapter, there were so many fish that were caught, they couldn't get them out of the water into the boat. And it's going to take all of them in order to accomplish what Jesus is asking them to do here in just a minute. So he's including all of them in the process. He said to them, bring some of the fish. Now, obviously, it didn't take all of them to bring a few of the fish, but he wanted them all to be a part, and he was including them in the process of what he was doing there. I don't understand why in the world his plan and his purpose includes me, but it does. And he includes you in what he wants to do. And there's a collaborative effort between us and Jesus in which we side by side with him, listening to him, following his instructions, obeying them to the letter. We see incredible things take place as we individually and corporately do what God has asked us to do through his son, Jesus Christ, his inclusivity. He wanted them to see, I'm including you in this breakfast. I want you to be a part of this. I want you to make a contribution. Number three, we see his generosity. His generosity. The second part of verse 11, so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. Simon Peter, again, is the impulsive. He's the, the initiator. He's the leader here. I don't think the others didn't follow suit, but Simon Peter is the first one to respond, and he's the leader here, and he dashes toward the boat. And as I mentioned earlier, it took all of them, you know, to try to get it above, out of the water, and onto the boat. They couldn't do it. I think it's going to take all of them to get it unhooked from the side of the boat and brought onto the shore. And all seven of the disciples are going to be needed. Simon Peter's not strong enough to do it on his own. So he's the one, one who initiates. He's the leader. He goes first. The other disciples follow him. And they haul the net from the boat, attached to the boat, secured there. Because none of the fish are getting out. Because I can't imagine they would haul it to the shore first and, and then go see Jesus. They're so excited that Jesus is, is on the shore. They leave the fish there. And he says, no, go back and get them. And so they get the fish and they bring them on shore. And true to the custom in the day of Jesus, that's what they would do. They would, the fishermen would fish all night and early in the morning they would then get the nets and they would bring them on the shore and they would put the fish out on the sand there on the the shore and the people would come and that's when market would take place and you could get you could buy the fresh fresh catch of the day and so the fish now are out of the net and they're flopping on the shore and then notice they're large meaning they're bigger than normal all of them not just a few of them 
all of them. The net was full of large fish, 153 of them. That's a pretty precise number, isn't it? Now, someone took the time to count the fish, didn't they? You count your bells of hay, Brother Denny? Absolutely. Why is that? Because when you go to market, you want to know how many you got, how much it's going to weigh, how much you're going to make from the market, and they're counting their fish. That's a custom. Let's bring it on to them. Let's count them. They're all huge, 153. But why are the disciples counting them? They're no longer concerned about the market anymore, and they're not concerned about their own hunger because they have fish already on the fire, ready to be consumed. I think they're counting the fish because they are rejoicing over the generosity of Jesus. There's an old hymn. Brother Mark, I don't know if you've sung this in a long time. It was written in 1897 by Johnson Oatman. Anybody know the song that I'm talking about? Anybody here? Count your blessings. I wonder if this is where this song came from. Now, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, we're going to sing this a cappella. So you're going to sing the chorus with me when I get to the chorus, okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, let's clear your throat. Breathe deep. This is going to tell how old you are. Because we haven't sung this song in a long time, Brother Mark. So I'm going to lead it today. Here's how the first stanza goes. When upon life's billows you are tempted, tossed, tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. That's what the disciples are doing. They're counting their blessings. Let's sing it with me. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God hath done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God hath done. A little weak, church, but let me go to what else it says. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly, and you will keep singing as the days go by. When you look at others with their lands and gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings, money cannot buy, your reward in heaven, nor your home on high. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. Sing it with me. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God hath done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God hath done. I can imagine the disciples were counting the fish, and they were counting their blessings. You know, when you get closer to Jesus, <laughs> you know, there, there's some of us in here today, and probably some listen online and, and other times during the week, you evaluate your circumstance or situation, and you try to add up all your blessings, seeing how I've kind of gotten the raw end of the deal. Others seem to have a better go at it than me. But when you get close and closer and closer and closer to Jesus, the more he reveals to you who he is and what he's done for you, that you just begin counting your blessings. 
And it's amazing the difference that will make in your circumstance and in your situation. Count your blessings. And when you do, as you get closer to him, you'll see how gracious, how merciful, how kind, how good he is. Number three, number four is fidelity. Fidelity simply means faithfulness. It means trustworthiness. He is a faithful, trustworthy God. Verse 11, and although there are, were so many, the net was not torn. Don't, don't skip over that word and. That's a huge word here. I mean, he could have finished with just 143 large fish net filled and all of that, and they were counting their blessing. But he says, and. There's more to what Jesus had written. There's more. We have a tendency when we start counting our blessing, we think that's it. And he's saying to them and to us, there's more than just what you're counting. And, he said, although there were so many, isn't it great that there were many in the net? There were many of them in the net. And there are many who God wants to bring in the gospel net. There are many of us who have been brought into the kingdom. And there were so many. Notice he said the net was not torn. Why was the net not torn? Not because it was a good net. I believe it wasn't torn because Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, kept it from tearing so that not a single, not a solo, not one fish was lost from the net. Not one. 153 were caught when they first threw it into the, into the water, and 153 found themselves on the shore. Not a single fish was lost, not because of what the disciples did, but because of what Jesus did, because once they fell into the net, he secured that net, and all of them found their way onto the shore, and all of them were counted. He is a faithful God, and there are denominations out there, religions that call themselves Christianity, that do not proclaim, preach, help us understand that once saved, you were always safe. These fish didn't do anything to get in the net. They can't do anything to get out of the net. You didn't do anything to get into the gospel net. You cannot do anything to lose yourself from that gospel net. The hand of God is wrapped around you, and he is securely, tightly fixing his love on you, and you will never be lost. Never lost. Kind of reminds me of that song, he's got the whole world in his hand. And then it says, he's got you and me, brother, in his hand. When you're in the right hand of God, you can't be lost. Because his arm and his hand is stronger than any hand. No matter, you didn't do anything to get there, you can't do anything to leave there. You are secure and you are counted as a part of the kingdom and you will be counted in the end. And they got close to him, and they recognized in all of You know, this was cool for them because they were out here, and they were failing, you know. They weren't succeeding. And I imagine when they saw Jesus, they realized, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I've disobeyed him. Is there any conversation recorded here from John of rebuke, of condemnation, of conviction? He didn't need to do that. There was already enough conviction, right? 
And so as they're moving toward Jesus, they're wondering, what is he thinking about me? Have I, have I lost my place? Have I lost his love? Have I lost my calling? And he's saying to them, you haven't. You are still with me. I have securely fastened my call and my commission upon you. And nothing that you can do or fail to do is ever going to lose that with me. And I don't know about you, but that's a great thing to know. Because in spite of what many of you think, I am not perfect. What? Who said that? Like a female voice back there. You think it's a Father's Day anyway. And you're not perfect. And you're going to grab the bull by the horns and you're going to take the driver's seat and you're going to put your hand on the steering wheel and you're going to be tired of waiting and you're going to take your life in a direction that, that, and you're going to drift. And it's great to know that as we drift from time to time, he's still got us. He's still got you. And nothing you can do or fail to do could ever lose that. Number five, we see his accessibility. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. This is an invitation. I'm going to move through this very quickly. This invitation is an invitation to dine. This is the second invitation of Jesus, an invitation to dine. Now, we have fast food today, and we have fast prepared food, and we prepare our food fast. We consume it fast because we're on the go. We have instant breakfast. We, have, we grab stuff on the way out. We go to fast food restaurants we do a lot of fast food, but food back then, meals, dining, was a long process. It took a long time to prepare the food, and it took a long time to eat the food because they sat around the table, and they fellowshiped. There was communion. There was times of interaction, and there was times of, of closeness. And what Jesus is inviting them to, not just come and have breakfast. He's saying, come and let's dine. Let's fellowship. Come closer to me and come and be intimate with me because I want to be intimate with you. And I don't know about you, but that blows my mind. I'm over here waddling in my own self-pity and my own self-effort because I've accomplished nothing. I realize I'm outside of God's when I turn and he said, hey, I want to have fellowship with you. Really? Yeah, come on. But, but what about my failure? It's, I want you to be close. And sometimes in our failure, we have a tendency to run from him, not to him. But no matter what we've done or failed to do, he wants to be intimate, close with you. We really think about it, our morning Bible studies are five minutes. We read a quick scripture, a little bitty devotional, and we think that's going to do it for the day. And Jesus is saying, no, I want you to sit down with me. I want to be intimate with you, close with you. I want to fellowship with you. That should blow your mind. How the God of all the universe, sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, and all of the stuff that he could be busy with, he wants to have an intimate love relationship with little old nobody, you. And he wants you to snuggle up close to him, and he wants to reveal himself to you and you to him, and he wants to have those intimate moments with you. And yet we, we have a hard time turning off the stupid TV or, or taking time to settle down from the chores or the work and, sitting, and, and just giving him some of our attention. And he's accessible. He's available to you for the intimacy that you seek 
and your soul craves for. Number six, we see his sovereignty. No one of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? That word dare means they didn't have the courage. They were not bold enough. Who are you? And on the surface, you read this, you think, what the heck's going on? I mean, these are the disciples. They've had two revelations of Jesus already. Why would they need to ask him anything? And I think the context of the idea of what is, what is trying to be conveyed by John is that they were in, in such awe of being in the presence of Jesus, who was not dead, he was alive, and having seen what they saw and experienced what they experienced and now know what he has revealed to them, they are standing around the campfire with Jesus and they are just so in awe of his presence, they can say absolutely nothing. And I know sometimes in a place of worship, we want people to participate and to sing and to raise their hands and all that. These disciples in the presence of Jesus were so in awe of him, they could barely move, much less speak. And if you've ever had an encounter with Christ the way these disciples did, you know what I'm talking about. There are times in your life when he seems so real to you that there's nothing that you can say to add to the experience or the moment except just stand there and worship him from your spirit, not from your lips, but just in awe and in honor of his glory and his majesty. You're just sitting there just silent because there's nothing to say like the prophet Isaiah. You're just enamored by his presence. Why? Because he is Lord. He is sovereign over my circumstance, my situation, my life. He is Lord over everything. And you know, I don't know about you, but that, that, that calms my heart. It, it, it creates a, a, a sense of, of a lack of disparity. It, it kind of makes me feel good because in all the stuff that's going on and the hatred of the world and, and this, this radical Islam stuff and all of this killing and that happened last week, horrific. I can't imagine. You know, it is demonic. It is demonic. It is straight from Satan. It is from hell. And all the hellish, satanic, demonic nastiness is going on and the depravity of the world. I know that my Lord is sovereign. And I have to worry about anything. Because he reigns and rules on the throne and he is Lord. That brings hope and faith and confidence and a calmness and assurance that, that as I draw closer to him, and the closer I get, the more I recognize and realize he is Lord of all of this stuff that seems out of control, and yet I know he is Lord. Number seven, we see in this seven aspect, we see his identity. We see Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. What's the identity here? He's a servant. He's a servant. The disciples are sort of gathered around the campfire, and they're standing there, and John says nothing was said from them except Jesus' invitation to come and dine. Hey, boys, come on. It's time to eat. I prepared this for you. And then he, he Jesus, approaches them, gets even closer to them now that they have come closer to him, and he picks up the bread. He, Jesus, the Son of God, resurrected from the dead, Jesus, God in the flesh, picks up the bread and hands it to them. 
Can you imagine what that would have been like? Jesus, divine, eternal, all-powerful, Lord, hands me a piece of bread. And then he stoops down and he takes the fish off of the coals and he hands me the fish. And I, I take it. Can you imagine what that was like? The, the, the oddness, the wowness of that moment. Jesus serving them as an example. He's saying to them, I have selected you. I have called you. I have commissioned you. And now as I send you out, I, Jesus, I, Jesus, will provide for your needs. Look to me. It's available. Then lastly, wish we could stop there longer, his invincibility. It's interesting that, that God, through the Holy Spirit, divinely inspires John to end again with verse 13. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, notice that Jesus was revealed to the disciples. They didn't discover him without Jesus revealing himself to them. That's, that's critical, and we don't have time to camp out there. I wish we did, but we don't. But notice, after he was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. The disciples were with Jesus up in the garden. And the soldiers came, and they arrested him. Only one disciple followed close by, so they took him to a mock trial, and they accused him of crimes that he didn't commit, found him guilty when he was innocent, sentenced him to die on a cross. And the next day, they did exactly that, and they carried him, he carried his cross to the place of the skull, the place where he was crucified. They nailed his body on that cross. They raised him up, and he died. They stuck a spear in his side, and water came out with blood, indicating that he had, in fact, died. They pronounced him dead. They took his body off of the cross. They laid it in a tomb and rolled a stone over that, sealed the tomb, and said, it is over. He is done with. But was he? Three days later, he rises from the dead, and he is alive. These disciples thought it was over. They thought he was dead. They couldn't make sense of it. Now Jesus is there by a campfire, raised from the dead, completely God in the in their presence, and it is Jesus, the invincible one, the unbeatable one, the one who defeated death, Satan, and sin, and who said, I am not dead, I am alive. I am your champion. With me, you are invincible, and even though the gates of hell prevail against you, they will not. They will not. Many of you today studying life group about David and Goliath, didn't you? David, a little ruddy guy, wasn't even a part of the, the presentation of the prophet, right? And the prophet was smart enough to know that he wasn't standing there. Oh, there's a little bitty guy, in the, some little smart, little incompetent guy. He's just washing the sheep. He's the one God chose. And David went out and had a battle with who? Goliath. Goliath was mocking and taunting and teasing the warriors of God. 
shaking in their sandals, fearful of their lives. No one will go out. And yet David, a little boy with nothing more than some stones and a slingshot and faith in God and went and defeated Goliath. Didn't he? David, in our study today, in life group, is similar to what happened, what Jesus did on the cross. He seemed powerless. He seemed defeatable. It seemed too easy. They were able to arrest him and to try him and to convict him and to crucify him and pronounce him dead. But he defeated Satan for us and he defeated death for us. And now because of his, of his invincibility, we through faith in him, like him, are invincible. And he was trying to convey to his disciples then and to us today, he is invincible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The closer I get to him, the more invincible I see him, and the more courage it gives me as I stand for him in my world. So as we close, here's the question. Do I need to move closer to Jesus? Do I need to move closer to Jesus? How close are you to him today? Some of us here today are not close at all. We're at a very far distant from him. And the reason we're distant from him is because the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wage of that sin is death. In other words, because of our sin, we've been separated from God, and there's a distance between us and God. But for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Through faith in him, as I, in my distance, in my sin, and my lostness, I can turn to him, repent of my sin, and move toward him, he then saves me from my sin. And places me in a right standing with Christ, with God, through faith in him. Do you need to make that decision today? For those of us who have already made that decision and were disciples, honestly, have you drifted from him? Is there a distance because of neglect or because of impatience or because of sin? You've let the troubles and the trials of the world sort of, sort of draw you from him. Isn't it time to you recognize where you are and where you ought to be and move toward him? And that the reason why you're having a hard time figuring him out and seeing all of the complexities of his presence and his power and his provisions and his promises in your life is because you're, you're way over here instead of closer. Because I'm convinced when you're close to him, we don't have some of the same questions and concerns that we have when we're far from him. I know I don't. So who of us needs to come closer today? Let's pray.